celebration against all odds. These past 75 years, we faced six times full-scale war in Israel. So many other campaigns, but full-scale, six times. Israel at 75. Hey, welcome back. And all the South Florida connections. I fell in love with being here. I'm supportive of Israel. I think being here is showing support. From Miami Beach to the heights of Israeli government. And we've been able to hold this place together despite having all of these threats. Complicated, diverse, historic. It's where if everything goes wrong in the world, where Jews are supposed to be safe. Now, all of the misconceptions that are out there are corrected when you come here and see yourself. Live from Jerusalem to South Florida, a special edition of This Week in South Florida. And good morning to you. Good evening from Jerusalem. I'm Glenna Milberg with this special edition of celebration for this country. 75 years of existence, a very tiny country with outsized achievements since 1948. And it comes right now at a really pivotal time in its history. You know, for months now and again this weekend, weekly protests drew more than 100,000 people. This one that you're looking at is in Tel Aviv. These are crowds who are rallying very peacefully, very patriotically, but very opposed to a plan by this government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to rebalance the power between lawmakers and judges, choose a different way to seat judges in the judiciary. And we will have much more on that. But right now, all this week, hundreds and maybe thousands of people from Florida are arriving into Israel to help with those celebrations. It's Wednesday. They've been here for days doing all kinds of things. And some of them actually had a firsthand experience in making Israel what it is today. A celebration before the celebration of Israel at 75. Thank you very much. Listen to the mayor of Jerusalem receive two keys from Miami and Dade County. There is not a day I don't come to in contact with at least one project or initiative which is supported by your wonderful community. This South Florida community on a mission with the Greater Miami Jewish Federation supporting and showing up for the diverse, complicated, historic, holy to many country that grew from the desert and desperation of the Holocaust. It's where if everything goes wrong in the world, where Jews are supposed to be safe. All of the misconceptions that are out there are corrected when you come here and see yourself. The convergence of the Jewish Sabbath and Muslim Holy Day Eid means the old city's holiest sites are filled with worshipers. Thousands at Al-Aqsa Mosque. At the ancient temple, Western Wall, intensely personal prayer, notes to God in the cracks, a surprise engagement. And South Florida represents. I just wanted to kind of settle in to the feeling of Shabbat and to just enjoy the delicious energy that we have here. The signs of next week's celebration are everywhere. Yom Ha'atzma'ut in Hebrew, Independence Day, 75 years against all odds. 
Odds bolstered by the South Florida diaspora. These plaques at Ammunition Hill, a living history site preserved by Jewish National Fund USA. It shows us about the sacrifice of our people, what they had to do in order to get that 2,000 year old dream of coming home to Israel. Israel turns 75, dealing with an uptick in violence from Iran-backed extremists. Some scaled the wall of the mosque, attempting to hang a Hamas flag. One got in a weapon. Security and cameras watch over all. There's always going to be, unfortunately, some conflict going on in Israel. So that we just deal with it. It's part of the everyday life. You know, there is someone very high up in government who has very much a part of dealing with that everyday life here, the struggles and the plan right now to come up with a consensus for these judicial reforms. And that is someone with a South Florida connection, born and raised in Miami Beach, who is used to be the U.S. ambassador for Israel and is now the Minister of Strategic Affairs, close, trusted advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Ron Dermer was here just a few hours ago on his way to that meeting where they are talking about finding consensus and he sat down with us just before. Minister Dermer, we are so grateful that you are taking some time with us today. I know you're really busy and we're going to get into all of the connections between South Florida and Israel in just a little bit, but I do want to start with current events. And I know from here, you are headed to the next round of talks to find consensus. Um, on the whole judicial reform plan because this weekend, 16th week of protests, and uh, the prime minister suspended the plan to do what you're doing now. So break some news with us today. Have you gotten anywhere? What, what do you see? How do you see that going? Where, where well, I'd, I'd love to, first of all, it's great to be with you, the hometown station. Uh, I'd love to be able to tell you that we've achieved this breakthrough. That's what we're trying to achieve. Uh, it's a major reform. Uh, and we would like to see a change and uh, reform in the judiciary and actually a broad swath of the Israeli public, both those who voted for the coalition and those in the opposition, believe of the need to reform. There's a question of what the reform should be, how broad it should be, how deep it should be. But the president of Israel um, has uh, hosted these rounds of discussions and it's really the first time that the opposition and the coalition have sat together in the same room and we've tried to work through these issues. So that's what we've been trying to do for the last uh, uh, few weeks, and I hope that we'll uh, achieve a result. The Prime Minister definitely wants to see a compromise. So the optics of what we see in South Florida, the news headlines Saturday, you know, 100,000 people, very peaceful, very unified, and very adamant that they're concerned with democracy. So explain that, because there is, a, to your point, great support in another segment of society for these reforms. Right. What, why are reforms necessary, A, and B, whatever the reforms are, how do, how do you make the opposition comfortable that this isn't about losing a democracy? Well, I don't think it's about losing a democracy. I think that's sometimes what is said. But I think if you actually get into the details of the reform, even if the reform passed as is, and I don't think it's going to pass as is because it's already been softened, and I think there's a clear desire to reach some sort of compromise, I don't think it would end Israel's democracy. Alan Dershowitz knows a little bit about constitutional reforms and judiciaries, and he's an opponent of the reform. He said if all the reform went through as is, Israel would be more like Canada and New Zealand. 
Now, Canada's a democracy. New Zealand's a democracy. Israel's a democracy and will remain a democracy. What has happened in, in Israel is around three decades ago, the court system in Israel became much more active, much more involved in nullifying laws of our parliament, our Congress, which is the Knesset. And the judicial branch of government became bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a feeling, a very strong feeling among the people who voted for this government, that's not 100,000, that's about two and a half million people, that something had to be done to reign in the judiciary, keep obviously an independent judiciary, but to have balance and restore balance between the executive, legislative, and judicial branch. And that feeling is very powerful. You're going to see on Thursday, there's going to be a protest of people for the reform, and you may get several hundred thousand. They're talking about the million-person protest. I don't know if a million people will come, if it'll be 200,000, 300,000, 400,000, but it's clear that there are very strong views on both sides of this debate. The ones who are for the reform, they think if we don't have reform, we're going to lose Israel's democracy because you're disempowering the elected branch of government, which is the Knesset. And there are others on the other side and say, well, if you make this or that change to the judiciary, that that will endanger Israel's democracy. So there's very strong feelings on both sides. I think when it comes to constitutional reforms, the most important thing is to try to reach a broader consensus, and that's what we're doing now, and I hope we'll succeed. So you, you mentioned that there has been some softening. What does that mean in practical terms? Well, just so you understand, because viewers may not uh, realize this, in Israel, it doesn't work like it does in the United States, where elected officials choose judges. In the American system of government, all federal judges are appointed by the President of the United States, mm -hmm. and they are confirmed by the Senate. Mm -hmm. Two elected branches of government. In Israel, that's not how you appoint judges. The way you appoint judges is you have a committee. On this committee are actual sitting judges. So imagine, just to understand it in American terms, imagine that in the United States you would choose judges by having three sitting Supreme Court judges on a committee that chooses judges. Now, most Americans would think that's not democratic, and they'd be right, it's not democratic. And here in Israel, the, the major argument is about how we should choose judges. And there is a belief in Israel, which I do not share, by many people who oppose the reforms that think if political leaders, if elected leaders choose judges, that, is somehow, that somehow threatens Israel's democracy. I think the opposite. I think if you don't have elected officials that choose judges, and if judges are effectively choosing themselves, that endangers democracy. So there are clear, very strong views on both sides. And what's important right now, without getting into the details, because our system is different than the U.S. system, we don't have a written constitution in here, we don't have a bicameral legislature, we don't have a federal system. There are many differences. I think the most important thing is to understand and appreciate how vibrant Israel's democracy is, that we want to preserve it, we want to strengthen it, and that's what we're trying to do. We're watching that happen as we speak. Absolutely. So, you know, the headline, it's complicated. All right, so um, some of your biggest supporters, Israel's biggest supporters, are right here right now to help celebrate the 75th, and we're going to talk all about that and all those connections when we come right back. back this week in South Florida, live in Jerusalem, Israel today. We pick up our conversation with Miami Beach native, now Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, about all the critical connections between Israel and South Florida. I, I want to talk about what's going on on the ground here. 
you can't go anywhere in Jerusalem without running into someone from South Florida this week. And, uh, you know, a lot of people here, hundreds, maybe thousands around the country to celebrate. Um, and many from South Florida are huge supporters all year round, but so many have an integral first-hand um, part in the creation of Israel and the sustaining of Israel. And tell me a little bit about that. Fill in those details. Well, I can tell you about my, my connection to Israel, my family's connection to Israel. My, bro my mother was born in pre-state Israel. Uh, and when my father was elected mayor of Miami Beach, it actually happened, you may not know this, during the Six-Day War. Uh, he ran against Franklin Roosevelt's son during the Six-Day War. And my mother, who's a Sabra, a native-born uh, Israeli, as his wife, it was quite a story then. While Israel was surrounded by its enemies on the eve of the war, and actually after the war had already begun, my father got elected mayor. And it didn't hurt him that he had uh, uh, a wife who was born in, uh, in Israel because there was very strong support. And when I was growing up in, in Miami Beach, there was always strong support. It was a very pro-Israel, very Zionist community across the spectrum, whether you were left, right, center. But uh, why, why is that? What, what is that connective tissue? Well, I think for, for Jews, I think a lot of it had to do with, you had a lot of Holocaust survivors. I remember when I was growing up who lived on Miami Beach, and I think they understood what the world was like when the Jews did not have uh, a place where they could defend themselves and did not have a refuge. You know, Florida is a place where the St. Louis uh, wasn't allowed to come into the United States, the ship that was sent back to Nazi-controlled uh, Europe. And so America did not open its gates at that time. And I think, I think people remembered that and they understand that to have a country, uh, a Jewish state means that not only the Jews have a voice, but that we have a refuge and that we have a shield and a sword and we can defend ourselves. And I think that is deep, deep in that community. And frankly, everywhere where you see in my travels, I was, I think, around 47 states when I was Israel's ambassador to the United States, wherever you see a strong and vibrant Jewish community, uh, you see strong support for Israel. It's really a function of the Jewish identity of the people in that community. In Israel, Jewish identity is very, very strong and has been strong throughout my life and, and for many decades before that, which is a little bit of a change, you know, because Miami Beach was a place that originally was founded on anti-Semitism. Things changed over the decades and then it really became a haven uh, for Jews and I think a haven for pro-Israel sentiment. So, and now, Israel as a Jewish state is really home to a very diverse population, especially in Jerusalem that's so holy to so many. And, and how does a Jewish state's government maintain that mosaic? Well, as you say, we have, uh, we have people and citizens who come from over 100 countries around the world. Israel's 70, around 75% Jewish, and it's about 20% uh, Arab. Most of those Arabs are Muslims, but a good chunk of them are also uh, Christians, Arab Christians. And then about 5% of our population it comes from, from about everybody else, all sorts of faiths and, uh, and creeds. And we've been able to hold this place together despite having all of these threats uh, which surround us for so many years. And I think it's because this place is driven by a remarkable sense of purpose. And I think uh, we understand what it's like when the Jews did not have a state, when the Jews were a powerless people. And I think that sense of of, of purpose, I think you see that during the entire year, but you're especially going to see it in these days where we're going to celebrate, uh, we're going to mark 
on Memorial Day, which is a very solemn day, the most solemn day in Israel's calendar, and it is immediate follow, immediately followed by Israel's Independence Day. And those two things go together because we understand in Israel, which is now only 75 years young, we understand the price of our independence. It's been the sacrifice of our soldiers. The ability to defend ourselves by ourselves has enabled our independence. And I think that feeling is very strong. And even though we have all of these fierce debates within Israel, you know, as a Jewish state, you know you're going to have a lot of debates about a lot of things. Kind of like uh, the dinner table. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, Israel's a giant dinner table. And it's not just Friday night. It's all year round you have those debates. And if you go to the Knesset, you will see the vociferous debates that you have there. And anybody who thinks you're having a difficult time in American politics with your two parties, you know, try 12. See how that works for you. So we have all these debates. But I think facing these enemies that we have, facing those who still call for the destruction of Israel, uh, we can put all those debates aside and stand together united against those threats. Minister of Strategic Affairs. I know some people call you Minister of Everything. Ron Dermer, great to have you on our program and I'm so grateful you spent some time with us. Thank you. So we spoke to the minister at about uh, 9.30 this morning, Jerusalem time, which would have been 2.30 a.m. South Florida time. He was actually, I mentioned, on his way to the meeting today. He's still there, and we are hoping, being here, that we will be among the first to know if there is any breakthrough on any consensus to that plan. All right, sit tight. We are back in a few minutes, live from Jerusalem. Jerusalem as South Florida arrives here to celebrate this week's 75th anniversary of the founding of the independence of the state of Israel. And as we try to be everywhere, we also have to be right there in Florida because there is huge news as the legislative session races to a finish. And for that, we turn things over to my colleague Janine Stanwood right there at the big table. Hi, Janine. Hi, Glenna. Thank you so much. And we're going to check for you, check in with you in just a minute. But first, we do have to get to some local news. More wins, of course, for Governor Ron DeSantis uh, this week. In fact, the Board of Education expanded the parental rights and education law, banning lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity. Now in grades K through 12, the exception is sex ed. The House also sending the governor a bill that bans children from adult live performances. Critics say that takes aim at drag shows, and they passed a bill that would make it a misdemeanor for somebody who enters a bathroom that doesn't align with their sex assigned at birth. And there's also a bill that criminalizes gender affirming care to minors that will be sent back to the Senate for a final vote. So here to sort all of this out are two South Florida lawmakers, State Senator Chevron Jones, a Democrat from District 34 encompassing Miami Gardens. And we're also joined by State, Repre State Representative Fabian Basave, a Republican representing District 106 covering coastal Miami-Dade. Thank you both so much for joining us. Representative Basave, thank you. I know you're having some technical issues, but it looks like you're getting back there, so thank you so much. We want to start with you right now because you have faced some scrutiny this week, pledging to support the gay community during your campaign, yet supporting legislation that many have said is anti-gay. So what is your response to that? Well, I think a big part of the problem is the misinformation on the actual bills. A lot of people are, are focused on the messaging from advocacy groups that are launching this, this hateful misinformation campaign, but they're not reading the actual bills. And these bills do not target the community. And we as adults have a responsibility 
We have a responsibility to interpret these laws in the best interest of our community, not to not to do this. What's going on right now is a is a lot of theater. It's it's horrible. It comes from a bad place. I, I've I've done so much, so much, to 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 fix these bills to make sure that in no way the language affects the community that I live among to, and that I love. Right. What have you done to to fix these bills? And what, in particular, misinformation is is out there on that? Okay, so a lot of people don't really understand the process, right? All these bills go through several committees. And in each committee, you can either decide to just not participate, vote against it, or you can, you know, make an, you know, an agreement with the sponsor that you will be participating in the language going forward. I voted these bills forward because I, and, and as I've stated in all my committee meetings, it's all available on, on YouTube, um, you know, that I wanted to work on some of the language that may lend itself to targeting, where it's specifically singling out or mentioning or referencing any member of this community that I love in a way that could be misinterpreted. So the original Parents' Rights and Education Bill had lines 97 to 101. You know, it references the LGBTQ community. And I said, there's no reason to do that. They're just, we are all one community. So the language has been modified. The bill has evolved and it is where it is today. And people haven't taken the time to read the final version. Instead, they are taking, you know, tidbits from misinformation campaigns where every word makes a difference. A may is not a must. A may is not a prohibit. But it still bans you know? that no type of instruction. Let me actually get to Senator Jones. I know you're from a different chamber, but I'm sure you have something to say about this. What, what is your response to uh, what the representative is saying? Well, I think we, it's important for us to point out that anti-LGBTQ legislation has taken on several forms uh, across the nation. Over 200 different type of uh, LGBTQ bills have been filed across across the country. Uh, I think reasonable minds will agree that inappropriate material should not be in libraries and age-appropriate conversations should be age-appropriate. Uh, and reasonable minds will agree on this. Um, but that's just not what we are seeing. What we're seeing is uh, a plethora of these bills that's traveling across the country, and they have reached us. Uh, here within within the Florida House and within the Senate. And what, what I have told to some of my Republican Senate colleagues is sometimes you have to take a page out of profiles and courage and do what is the right thing to do and what you told people that you would do um, and not doing what the governor tells you to do or what a, a leader tells you to do. What is the right thing for you to do? Senator Jones, let me ask you this also. You know, the, the people who are supporting some of these rules say, look, can't you be a friend to the gay community? Can't you support the well-being? But in terms of the uh, the 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 uh, parental rights and education, can't you say, hey, listen, I don't want gender issues and sex issues to be part of uh, any lesson plan unless it's sex ed. That seems right. reasonable, no? Right. No, that's absolutely reasonable. And that's why I say reasonable minds will agree that inappropriate content shouldn't be in our classrooms. And listen, I've made it clear in committee and I've said it on the floor. Let's keep things PG-13. That's right. Like I said on the floor, parents have parental rights, our parental rights, and parents should also have the rights if their child is not uh, straight. The, the gay parents, uh, LGBTQ parents also need those same rights that the, the, fast, the mass majority is basically uh, taking away from them. Representative a big part Basabe. of the issue, I think, if I can just make a comment on that, is we, I, have, I, re I represent a bunch of cities, right? And we don't have, our, our counselors at the schools, they don't have a master's degree in, in child psychology or early child development. Why are we not putting our attention towards making these resources available? You know, the bills do not target the community. They just do not. That is not how I interpret them. That is not how anyone should be interpreted. Well, let me ask both At of all. you this. And, and, in and, fact, and... Chef, we should talk about what we've done together. 
you know, the senator and I have co-sponsored, I'm a prime co-sponsor of an HIV infection uh, uh, bill that's making medicine uh, for preventative care and post-exposure care a lot more accessible and available. We've worked on a couple of things. I mean, I, I have been going cross-party lines to do what we can. Sure. But we need to be focusing on, a, on making resources like that, but also on, on proper counseling, proper, you know, uh, outreach, people that know how to handle conversations. Right, no child right should be now I will just interrupt that Republicans have a supermajority in, in both chambers and these are the priorities on the legislative agenda. I will ask both of you, you know, have either of you received calls from constituents with concerns about kids in the classroom or kids in bathrooms? A lot of people, uh, Representative Basabe, have argued these bills aim to fix problems that don't actually exist. What do you say to that? Uh and I, I, well, I also, well, what I will point out is that the, you're absolutely right. A lot of these bills that we have put forth are, uh, there, there's no problem that has been presented. Uh, what we're seeing is, again, across the country, that these bills have been coming coming about in different forms. And I get what, what, what my friend and colleague, uh, Representative Basabi, is saying, but within this process, uh, if how can anyone enjoy the freedoms of these things that he's calling out and the resources that he's bringing, bring, bringing about? No. You can't, I, if you disrespect individuals, human rights. I actually rights. have gotten second, calls, because you're asking about the calls. Give me a second. I, I want to make it clear. That Just so when, you know, we have very little time, 30 seconds left. Yeah, let's talk when, communi <laughs> when communities When communities feel attacked, this is what we get. But as legislators, our main goal should be fixing the property insurance uh, rates that we have here. Our main goal should I be- I agree with that. Can I just throw in something insurance. about the calls? Oh, sea level rise. We need to be teachers. doing the things that matter to Floridians. Okay, Representative Basabe, the, uh, the floor yeah. is yours. The teachers are concerned that they might not be equipped. You have a math teacher who doesn't necessarily understand gender issues. You're never in the classroom, you'll never know. And and they and, and no child should be turned away, but what they do have a responsibility to do is make sure this child gets to gets the proper attention that they need and also include the parent in the conversation. It's about partnerships. Parents we are, are partners in this community. All right, both of you children. guys right now, apologies. We do have to end this segment, this conversation, of course, and definitely should continue. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. We do appreciate it. We also want to talk about long lines for gasoline all over South Florida and water pressure issues in the Florida Keys. We go one-on-one -on -one with the folks in charge right after this. this week where was the gas and why was it taking it so long for gas stations to be replenished in Broward Miami-Dade and the Florida Keys we saw lines of cars waiting for fuel at stations that had gas and then we saw plenty of other service stations with limited or no supply of gas this comes after record floods from more than a week ago damaged pumps at fuel terminals at Port Everglades which is the supply for South Florida so once again we have Lamar Fisher the Broward mayor with us this morning and Broward let's uh, Mr. Mayor let's get right to it earlier in the week five of the 12 terminals were not operating but now they're back so the question is are trucks still playing catch up what's the latest but thanks to for having me yes indeed we are back to normal all 12 terminals are operating uh, fuel is getting to the trucks for dissemination to the gas stations so again 100 percent back online so and as i ride through broward county last few days uh, i see no lines at the, at the pumps and I see plenty of forced fuel throughout our county. The CEO of the port who was unable to make it onto the show today, he repeated this week that the terminals are operated by private fuel companies, but the port of course is operated by you, by the county. So the question is, can the county mandate certain regulations that could help if there's a hurricane or another flood like this? In speaking with our petroleum partners uh, this past week, uh, they we can't actually mandate them to do anything, but they are already in progress of getting 
uh, the pumps where they have to pump this fuel cord to the racks. They're looking at the future and how they can elevate those pumps so this doesn't happen again. So we're working directly with them and supplying where we can for them, but ultimately they have to make that decision, but they are on board as partners with us. But if they're leasing, and, and this is just to clarify, if they're leasing, if the petroleum companies are leasing from the port, which is run by the county, can there be any kind of ordinance saying, listen, anybody who uh, is, is leasing terminals here, the pumps have to be X feet high, for example? No, you can't. They're privately owned, actually. The terminals are privately owned by the petroleum partners. So we can only encourage them to uh, rearrange their pumps. They were actually, what happened was they were flooded. And so they need to now elevate them uh, to a higher level. But all of them have committed to, I believe, the county and the board to make those changes necessary. I think this really drew attention to the fact that Port Everglades does supply fuel to all of South Florida. Even people are in Key West were saying, I can't believe that what's happening in Broward County is affecting us. Is there concern that all of the supply is coming from one place? Well, it's actually Port Everglades uh, services 12 counties. Uh, again, the fuel was not an issue. We had all the fuel of the docks that we needed to replenish, uh, of course, the economy here in Broward County and others. Um, we learned from this experience. We learned that the berms held the water within that. So again, as I port we'll be looking to do what we can to get that water obviously back to the ocean and back to the coastal waterway um right now we've learned that the governor is appealing to the biden administration wanting to declare uh broward a disaster zone what would that mean for broward county um what would that do and and how could that potentially help homeowners yeah we were able to send a letter to uh, president biden this week and the governor was gracious to pull his support behind it that's a big game changer for us, Jenny, because then we can tap into the FEMA resources, especially those folks who are hardest hit in their homes. I was on the ground with the team this week. There were four teams in our hardest hit areas walking home to home to see what the damages are. So we can have the assessment and those surveys available to obviously go back to those folks and get them help. So it was a big game changer for us that uh, Washington is stepping in. Still so much to be done. So many people who have lost everything. Uh, Mayor Fisher, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we're going to be in touch as this issue continues. Thank you so much. We want to turn things now to the Florida Keys and the nearly 50 year old water main that supplies water to the island chain, which continues to boom with visitors and development. We were actually there last month when there were a whopping three water main breaks in the span of several days. At one point, disrupting service so severely schools and county buildings had to close. And now a month later, people in the Keys are still being asked to conserve water and water pressure has been lowered ever since. So what's being done? We're happy to have back on the Show, the head of the Florida Keys Aqueduct Authority, Craig Velez. Thank you so much for being with us. You know, there's so much new construction now happening in Isla Mirada. People are seeing that traffic shift on the overseas highway. That's all part of this uh, water main, right? Can you give us an update? That's correct. Um, I, I'm not sure that they're seeing it yet um, as it relates to us, but um, later this week they will be starting in that lane of traffic. So you will see uh, uh, for quite some time a shift in traffic. We'll still have two lanes, one going north, one going south but it's gonna move over to the, um, to the pullover lane. Um, describe sort of what's happening in that transmission line in Isla Mirada. That, is, uh, that was already planned even before these water main breaks happened, right? That is correct. That was identified in the past as a problematic area. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, we have 130 miles of water line uh, connecting us to Florida City, and that's our only source of water. Uh, we, we had this plan, we have about a 12 mile stretch plan the first uh, phase of which is five miles 
Uh, we've already laid 900 feet underneath the seabed at tea table relief. And of and course, different materials, right? Not that old iron that uh, gets corroded so easily. That's correct. That, back then they used ductile iron and that was sold as the latest and greatest. And we're going back to steel and um, some man-made products for the subaqueous crossings. When we last spoke, you said that the reduction of water pressure to the Keys, uh, which is still going on right now, was indefinite. Is that still the case? Well, we're, we've lowered pressures in order to try to, you know, to minimize the amount of damage to the pipe. Um, we're not experiencing any leaks. Everyone has water. Our stores are, have been have been brought back to normal levels, so we're we're fine as far as water. Everyone has water. Yes, you might be experiencing some some minor pressure decreases, but but for the most part, um, we have no water problems here at all. This has been just such a huge issue. The cost to do all of this, uh, the water main, of course, when, when you and I had last spoke, I mean, it really has reached the end of its life. So the cost to replace all of that is is what? I, I was seeing figures like $1.2 billion. And where's that money coming from? Well, much of it's coming from the state right now. Uh, we've got some low interest loans, uh, WIFIA loans that we're, we're drawing from. Uh, everything, we have $115 million worth of projects going on right now, all of which are funded. Uh, we're anticipating having another successful year uh, in Tallahassee, and hopefully we can move on to the next two and then the next five mile project that we have already in design. Not an easy job, and of course, the keys continue to boom, so uh, we'll see what happens next. Thank you so much, Greg Velez, the head of the Florida Keys Aqueduct Authority. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Up next, it'll be easier for juries in Florida to access the death penalty. We talked to our legal experts about what all of that means. Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law that makes it easier for someone to be sentenced to death in Florida. No surprises here. After the Parkland school shooter was given a life sentence because the jury was not unanimous in recommending death, the governor indicated he wanted a change. Since 2016, Florida law required jurors to be unanimous in a death recommendation. This new law only requires eight of the 12 to do so. We are so happy to have the expertise of Gail Levine, a retired Miami-Dade prosecutor, as well as Craig Trichino, the director of the University of Miami Law's Innocence Clinic. So welcome back to both of you. It's like old times when we were covering the sentence of the Parkland shooter. Both of you were here for analysis. This new law, if it were on the books, then that means the shooter would have been sentenced to death unless, of course, the judge didn't heed that recommendation. Gail, do you think this new law is a good idea? I consider this law something that I would say instant gratification for death penalty proponents. It sounds good to start with. It sounds like it's going to move the cases along, but I think in the end, it's a bad idea. A bad idea. Why, Craig? I know a lot of defense attorneys have said there should be a high threshold for a death recommendation uh, because we're talking life or death. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I agree with Gail. Um, this is a solution in search of a problem. Before, uh, while we were still having unanimous verdicts, we led the nation in death row sentences, death sentences. Um, and the clear national standard is unanimity. This seems to be a reaction to the Parkland uh, case uh, because the, the, the common refrain from supporters is that the Parkland shooter, quote, escaped justice, unquote, although he was convicted and sentenced and he's going to die in prison. 
Uh, so I don't know that any of this uh, process that we're going through is anything about justice. It's uh, more but Gail, why, why have a death penalty? So many of these parents, so many people who watched this uh, sentencing with us said, well, if there's ever a case for death, it was this. And you had jurors who just couldn't agree. So why even have the death penalty? Well, I think the death penalty provides a lot of closure. Having witnessed an execution myself, um, of uh, Thomas Knight. I found that the family got so much closure from that and that it was the right decision in that case. What I think is the problem is that jurors aren't honest with themselves. When the prosecutors spend days and jury selection takes days, sometimes weeks, and they ask the jurors, can you do it in the right case? They really lie to themselves. And when push comes to shove, they can't do it for religious reasons or for whatever reason. But I think that's the problem. The problem that we're trying to overcome is basically a one-person veto. Now, if you have that in the innocence phase, in the first phase of the trial, if one person says not guilty, it's a do-over, right? The person doesn't go free, we try the case again. In this circumstance, if one person says, no, I don't agree, the person gets the opposite sentence. So the problem is trying to figure out through economics, what's the best way to reach some unanimity or some majority that allows the court to see that the person that was going to be sentenced to death should be sentenced to death. Right, in the Parkland case, there were some jurors who complained that those who didn't want death also didn't want discussion. Their mind was already made up. Um, Craig, was Correct. that just, right. Uh, Craig, what, what do you think about that? Was that just bad well, jury selection? I, I, no, I don't think so at all. I think Gail makes an interesting point that the jurors, when when they have to make that decision, that deliberative process is very intense, very weighty, and very heavy when you're finally faced with having another human being's life in your hand. And I think jurors take that very, very seriously, as they should. And the Parkland jury apparently took it very, very seriously. That doesn't mean that no death sentences were meted out in, in the last five years in Florida, because they certainly have. Another death sentence was issued in Broward County Courthouse that same week. So this is not a problem with the, with the death sentencing process. It's an issue that it's difficult to get a death penalty, and it ought to be. Florida right now under this new law would be, what, eight to four. The other um, state that requires a majority is what, Alabama, uh, and that is, is that is that a nine to five or is that an eight to ten? To ten? To that, that, that's a ten to two. And I, it's Alabama, Indiana, Missouri, all three of them. And I think they account for that one person veto. I thought that the ten two was probably going to uh, be able to be swallowed a little bit more by the United States Supreme Court, who has moved to a lot of uni unanimity in decisions about criminal cases, not necessarily in sentencing. Obviously, we've had two executions where people have not had a unanimous decision in the last couple of months. So I don't think that the court is looking completely for uni unanimity, but I think 8-4 is a somewhat low standard, and it causes more divisiveness as opposed to more um, people coming together and believing that the penalty is appropriate. Is, uh, this is probably not going to be without legal challenges, right, Craig? I mean, it was Hearst, I guess, that sort of undid the uh, majority rule last time around. W what do you guys expect uh, this time around, Craig? 
Oh, I anticipate a flood of litigation uh, stemming from this uh, that's going to cost the state of Florida millions and millions of dollars uh, to, to uh, defend this uh, particular statute. Um, I don't think the, the money is necessarily uh, well spent, considering that there were uh, executions carried out um, and that we've gotten death sentences uh, post Hearst since 2017. Like I said earlier, we've led the nation in death sentences. So it wasn't for a lack of sentencing people to death. Uh, so I think like a I'm both sorry, of you, ahead. I was just going to say, both of you, thank you very, very much for your legal expertise, of course, during the sentencing of the Parkland school shooter, which meant so much to this community here in South Florida. And of course, we'll be in touch as this continues. Thank you. Thank you. Thank and you. More with our colleague Glenda Milberg. She is coming up live from Jerusalem when we come right back. big South Florida connection to Israel where we join our own Glenna Milberg once again live in Jerusalem. Glenna, the sun is setting, so good evening to you. It's true, you can see that the sun is going down over the old city, the lights are coming up. You see the beautiful mosque, the Church of the Sepulchre behind me. Um, the, the people are still out. This is a very big tourist area. And many of the people who are coming in now are from South Florida in droves to help celebrate the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence. And so many of those people from South Florida are such supporters year round in all sectors of Israeli society, medical, education, all kinds of things, but I want to show you something that you may have not have thought of when you think about how to support people in Israel. I want you to look at some video. What you're looking at are bomb shelters that have been painted in whimsical, musical motifs. Uh, you'll see a, a woman and a man in this video. The man is the artist who did the paintings on these bomb shelters, and the woman is Linda Kaplan from Hallandale Beach, who raised money to get this beautiful artwork done. Why? Why is that important? These bomb shelters are at facilities and parks, uh, playgrounds, in communities that are very close to the Gaza border. And those are the communities when rockets and terrorist activities come from Gaza, they are the most vulnerable. The air sirens go off. They have 15 seconds to get to a bomb shelter like that one. And so you'll see these concrete structures all over what's called the Gaza envelope, the area of Israel that is within those eyesights. And so these people like Linda, pay support to have these bomb shelters look like something other than what they are. And um, and also a lot of the money goes to things like mental health, PTSD treatment for kids who, who live with this, and adults too, of course, who live with this kind of pressure every day. So we'll come back out here and I'll, I'll just tell you we'll have so much more as the week goes on. We have so many things to show you about what South Florida is doing in Israel and all the connections that are being made between the state and the country and all the cities and all the people. And I hope you will stay with us as we report live from Israel as the week goes on. And Jenny. Glenda, we do actually have about 30 seconds. I just wanted to ask you, we saw the bomb shelter. We also saw in some video there are surveillance cameras where you are in Jerusalem and you've been to Tel Aviv. Is there a law enforcement military presence? What is that? There is. There's a police presence almost everywhere you go, either police or soldiers. They are armed. It is very much for law enforcement here, open carry. This is a security state. Israelis live with the threat of death, really, every day all around them. And so this is protection for them.
Glenna, thank you so much. And everyone. And we do want to remind everybody to stay with us for the very latest on Israel's 75th anniversary. Our Glenna Milberg will continue to bring you live reports from Jerusalem this week. Thank you so much.